Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he said, what? You are the light of the world. See, the job of the people of God is to reflect the light of God in a dark world and to keep that light lit. That is our job. And that is why it is so challenging for you and for me and for all of God's people to keep following Jesus because there's so much darkness and the darkness is enticing. A dirty mirror is useless. A lamp with no light would be thrown out. As Pastor Daniel teaches about the objects within the tabernacle, we'll hear how there is deep significance in everything. The lampstand had to remain lit constantly, which was the job of the priest. Our role is the same, to be clean reflectors of Jesus' light. And today, you'll find out how to do that. Now here's Pastor Daniel with part two of his message entitled, Furniture and Fashion. of ancient Israel worshipped at God's house, but not everyone worshipped in God's house. If you look at the way this is designed, you have the tent, the holy place in the holy of holies, which was in effect God's house, specifically the holy of holies. But all the people simply came to the outer courts. They spent time outside. And in a lot of ways, this is designed a lot of the way our houses are designed today and what was very common for people who lived in tents in that day. You would have people, you'd receive them outside. Maybe there'd be a sitting area on the inside, but most often you don't invite people into your bedroom, right? There's your, there's your outside. You can have a whole big party in the backyard. Maybe let some people into the downstairs, but you don't let them into the most private places. And in a lot of ways, this is designed the same way where you have the outer court, which is where people would enter. They would spend time in the outer courts. Now, the tabernacle measured about 15 feet wide and about 45 feet long. And that took up only a small portion of what ended up being the courtyard, because the courtyard, according to its layout here, is 150 feet or 100 cubits, long and 75 feet wide, which was 50 cubits. So the courtyard itself was about 11,250 square feet. So the courtyard is large in comparison to this tent where the Holy of Holies and the Holy is. It was a perfect oblong shape, twice as long as it was wide. Now, why was it there? This court the outer court. It had really a fourfold purpose. One, it was a barrier that pre prevented unlawful approach. Notice, it's covered in all around. There's one way in and one way out. So the idea was, is that although God wanted everyone to worship him, there was really only one way in through that gate. Notice, out of everything about that outer court, the only thing that was truly decorative was the entryway. We find, remember, it's made of fine 
linen with the purple and the scarlet thread, all these things. Everything else, some of it was nice, but that was really nice. Why? Because you're stepping into the presence of God. And the beauty, remember we said the beauty is on the inside? The entryway was meant to be inviting, but it did function to keep people on the outside. Second, it was protection. It kept out wild animals. There's all these curtains and everything is quartered off. So people couldn't just bum rush into it. No one could just make their way into the holy place or the holy of holies. Notice, third, it was a positive line of demarcation between the presence of God and the world. Something special happened when you walked into those courts. It was a dividing line. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what Jesus is, isn't he? Jesus is the dividing line. God's dividing line. People say it to me all the time. They'll be like, you know, I'll be talking to someone about the Lord. I love sharing the gospel with people. And they'll be like, you know, I just don't understand you Christians. I mean, why is it got to be all about Jesus? I mean, listen, you know, so like, so I'm a Buddhist. I mean, what's the big deal? I'm like, are you really a Buddhist? That's, if anyone ever tells you they're a Buddhist, that should always be your next question. Are you really a Buddhist? Because American culture, because it's Western, we have this affinity for Buddhism, but nobody even has a clue what Buddhism's all about. They really don't in the West. It's amazing. If you ever take a trip to a place where Buddhism is actually practiced, it's way different than just doing a little yoga. It's a whole other ballgame. Like you go into Buddhist, I've been there in Nepal. You go into these Buddhist temples and there's all paintings of demons everywhere. You're like, great. Wow, this is exciting. It's like a horror show. You know, and there's nothing like seeing a Buddhist monk wearing a brand new pair of Nikes. There was actually an article, I don't even know, I'm off on a tangent, I'm sorry. But there was an article in the newspaper about they're trying to cut down on these monks who are, who are, who are living the Gucci life in the name of being monks. I mean, talk about a tragedy. But anyway, how did I get off on that? Oh, the line of demarcation. Because <laughs> I have my, uh, <laughs> the track is over here and I don't even know where I am. I'm doing donuts in the other parking lot. <laughs> See, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, look, everything else is worldly. This is where spirituality lives. Jesus made himself the line of demarcation. And it's been said often that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, all three are distinct possibilities if you actually read what Jesus says and see what he does. Because when he says things like, I and my father are one, either A, he's lying, B, he's loco, or C, he is God in the flesh. And so it's an honest assessment. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And someone say, well, I think Jesus is a liar. And I'd say, well, then prove it. Show me where he lies. And then you start dancing. Because it's hard. Oh, I think Jesus was a lunatic. Really? So, so, so our position now is that people who say love and self-give and be compassionate, that's a lunatic in this day and age? Well, maybe. Or he's the Lord. And, and this tabernacle, this outer court, it was a specific line. This is when you're out. This is where you're in. And people all the time say, what do I need to do to be right with God? I always say the same thing. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. 
That's the line right there. And it's a clean line. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You either believe that he was God's son and he died on a cross for you and rose from the dead or you don't. It's really not very gray. You're either in or you're out. And if you're here today or you're watching online or someone's giving you this, listen, you need to make a decision about Jesus. Jesus doesn't give you like, I'm just going to sit on the fence with Jesus. Fence were not invented to be sat on. And when you do, they're incredibly uncomfortable. So you need to make a decision. Do you believe in Jesus or do you not? And each one of those decisions has eternal consequences. Not only later, but now. Because how, what you believe about Jesus feeds the person that you are today. I'll be honest with you. I didn't grow up in the church. I never would have dreamed 20 years ago that I'd do some of the things that I do today. Like, that's loco to me. Like, wow, I really do that now? Yeah, you do. Never would have done it. But because I believe in Jesus, I have a whole new set of values that I live by. A whole new set of things that drives my life. So it's not only about fire insurance later, it's about life insurance for right now. Because if you follow Jesus, you will live radically differently than you did before. Because Jesus will ask you to do things that you never dreamed you would do. Like go and reconcile with somebody who totally did you wrong and forgive them, not because they're asking for it, but because God said, look, I forgave you of a little debt. I want you to forgive them. And it drives you. You act totally different. I had someone come into my office today and said, Pastor, I just want to apologize to you. And I don't even, they didn't even do anything wrong. I mean, like, I'm like, dude, is there a problem? Well, you didn't know that there was. I'm sorry anyway. I'm like, great, you know. But Christian people do that because you realize, hey, my heart's been wrong with that person. They don't even know it, but I'm going to go apologize and tell them I'm sorry for being a knucklehead. They didn't even know it. I mean, it's hard to get people to apologize for things that everyone knows that they do wrong, let alone the things that nobody knows. See, there's a specific line of demarcation between those who are in and those who are out. And again, I already made the point, there's one gate in. There's only one way in. Jesus said the gate is narrow. The way is difficult. Few find it, but it leads to life. And Jesus is that gate. He is the entryway and the pathway to a life in Christ. So that's the outer courts. Very simple. Again, all this stuff has got pegs and ropes and all these things because it was a mobile thing. Now, notice what happens in verse 20. It says, You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generation on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, remember this. This is a tent. This was long before PG&E, Clark County Utilities. Insert your favorite utility company there. The only reason there was any light in this temple was because this golden lampstand. And this was God's house. And so the priest had a responsibility to keep this golden lampstand lit 
with light from evening until morning. Because there would be, the nor be the normal light of the day during the day, but at night, they needed to be responsible to keep the place lit, to keep the lights on, so to speak. Now notice, nothing but the best for the Lord. So in verse 20, we find out that they use olive oil, and we all said, mmm. And just, just the thought of it makes me hungry. <laughs> but olive oil, the best for the Lord. I got to stop. I'm going to start talking about olive oil right now. But I already made the case earlier, the idea of the, the light that stays lit. The reason we have Hanukkah, the festival of lights, is because they only had enough oil after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. They only had enough oil for one day. And miraculously, as the Lord had done many times in their history, that one day's worth of oil lasted for seven days as they repurified to keep the, the light in the temple lit. So that's why we know the menorah. But the priests had a responsibility to keep the light lit. Now, I'm going to make an application because it's so easy to do. We know that as believers, we are a kingdom of priests. It's according to First Peter chapters 1 and 2. We're a kingdom of priests. And that's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he said, what? You are the light of the world. See, the job of the people of God is to reflect the light of God in a dark world and to keep that light lit. That is our job. And that is why it is so challenging for you and for me and for all of God's people to keep following Jesus because there's so much darkness and the darkness is enticing. And God wants to keep our reflectors clean, our mirrors clean, so that we can just reflect the light of God into the world. That's our job. Notice, it's a statute forever, it says. The priest's job was to keep the light lit. Jesus' light is always shining. The question is, is are we reflecting his light? And that's why we got to do battle against sin. we got to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil in our own lives because it's really easy it's really easy to stop reflecting the light. And then and there's no judgment there, because I'm with you. It's really easy to stop reflecting the light. Things happen. Life happens. There's justifiable hurts and all of these things. But the Lord would have each one of us to be a priest of the Lord, to reflect his light in a dying world. Now, as we move to chapter 28, now we get to the fashion part. Because God's priests needed to be all decked out. That's what we're going to learn. Can I get an amen from anybody? No fashionistas in here? Amen. The Lord has got some fashionistas going on here. Vestments signified authority in the ancient world. And what's interesting is in the absence of a monarchy in the children of Israel, the priests were the visible leaders. They were dressed differently. They were adorned with special clothing so that people would know that these are the leaders of the people. Why? Because in a theocracy where God is the king and the key, those who are ministers of the Lord end up having the place of authority. Now, again, you read the Old Testament, oftentimes the priests were part of the problem because they enjoyed the power rather than the self-sacrificial service that they should have been serving. These guys are all decked out. So look, we'll just jump right in. Verse 1. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, and that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make 
holy garments for Aaron, your brother. For glory and for beauty, you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a rope, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. Now notice, Aaron and his sons. So the brother of Moses, Aaron and his sons, are the ones who have been given the place of priesthood. Nadab and Abihu, we're going to catch them again in Leviticus chapter 10, when they offer profane fire. And we'll discuss some of what that means when we get to Leviticus chapter 10. And they end up dying in the presence of the Lord for a lack of care, for caring for their ministry, leaving only Eliezer and Ithamar to follow Aaron as high priests. Now, I want you to notice, verse 1, that he may minister to who? To me. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. The priests of the Lord were to minister to the Lord first. And they ministered to the Lord by ministering to the people. I think this is so important because it's so easy to serve people and not serve the Lord. And when you serve people, you will only do it as long as you receive whatever sort of uh, reinforcement you think you deserve. And so if you do all these nice things for someone and they don't say thank you, eventually you're like, well, forget you, right? Isn't that, that's how we're wired. Listen, everybody, don't serve people. Don't. They will never give you the reinforcement that you want. And you know why they never will? Because they weren't created to give you the reinforcement you want. Serve the Lord. Do everything you do as unto the Lord. And as you do that, people will get the benefit. And they'll be blessed. And it doesn't matter if they give you the reinforcement that you want. Because you're not doing it for them anyway. They just get to be the lucky recipients of someone who's living vertically. And it has a horizontal implication. And I think this is so important. I'm, I'm here to tell you, as, as a pastor here at Crossroads, I don't do this for you. I do this for the Lord. And Lord willing, we get the benefit of it. When you do something, do it for God who sees in secret and rewards openly. Don't do it for people, because if you do it for people, they're never going to give you what you want. And even if they do give you what you want, you'll grab onto it, and then they won't do it again. People let you down, but we serve as unto the Lord. The priest did all sorts of stuff for the people, but he keeps saying, they minister to me, to me. And we have to make sure we're living life vertically, and people get the benefit You'll know when you're not living vertically as if everything you do, you stop doing everything that's generous, that's service-oriented because someone's not saying thank you. That's how you know you're living horizontally and not vertically. The priests did it to the people, to the Lord, and the people got the benefit. They got all new clothes. Notice verse 2, for glory and for beauty. Notice, th those are interesting words. God wanted his priests to be gloriously adorned. And he wanted them to be beautifully adorned. Now, I want to make the case. There is no extra spirituality in frumpiness. That's very tweetable, isn't it? There's no inherent spirituality in frumpiness. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We live in a culture which is very concerned with the external at the expense of the internal. So we don't want to be... I think it was Martin Luther who said that humanity is like a drunk man. He falls off of one side of the horse and he gets propped up. He falls off the other side of the horse. We don't want to fall off either side of the horse. Okay? Don't be overly focused on your appearance, but also realize that the way everyone presents themselves some way. And God set the priesthood up. They want them to be gloriously adorned and beautifully adorned. So it's not wrong to care about yourself. It's not wrong to present yourself in a way that you believe, hey, this is a good way to present myself. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Even in 1 Peter, it, it, Peter talks to women. He says, don't, don't let your adornment be merely outward. He doesn't say, only let it be inward. He says, don't let it be only outward. Because people for all time have always looked at our externals, not our internals. But it's not wrong to take care of yourself, to present yourself in a beautiful way. It's not wrong. God sets them up to do it for glory and for beauty. Notice in verse 3, speak to the gifted artisans who I fill with the spirit of wisdom. Those of you who are artists, take heed to that verse right there. God loves artisans. God loves artists. God's the great designer. And God tells, he tells Moses and Aaron, he says, listen, go speak to those who've been gifted with the ability to create beautiful things, the artisans. And I've given them a spirit of wisdom. Ask them to do it. And I like that because every part of the body has its specific giftings and skill sets. And that's a good thing. Not everybody needs to know how to do everything, but everyone needs to add what they know how to do. There are all sorts of people here across us who can do things I could never even dream of doing. Not, not even with two seconds of my time could I dream of how to do it. But everyone needs to do what they're gifted to. The artisan shouldn't be like, oh, I wish I was a high priest. The high priest should be like, I wish I was an artisan. The artisan should be artist-like. The high priest should take care of what God has called them to. Notice, verse 4 gives the whole rundown of all the different garments that we're going to talk about. There's eight garments mentioned. The four inner garments worn by all priests, the tunic, the undergarments, the sashes, and the headbands. And then there's four outer garments, which were especially worn by Aaron or the high priest, which would be the breastplate, the ephod, the robe, and the turban. So, jumping right in. The ephod. Now, an ephod, we don't use that word anymore. It refers to a torso garment. It was a piece of clothing that covers the body from the, the shoulders to the thighs. So it's like your kind of, your, your first outward garment. I always forget what they're called, those undergarments, the soldier suits. Is that what they're called, soldier suits? No one knows what I'm talking about. You know the ones with the little buttons on the back if you have to do your business? Union, union suits. Hey. They need to bring those babies back, don't they? In a lot of ways, the ephod functioned in a similar type of way. It was like your first garment from your shoulders to your thighs, one piece. Jesus is real. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel Fusco here. And I'm excited and humbled that you're listening to Jesus is Real Radio. When I was first approached about starting a radio ministry, it was kind of a humbling and terrifying experience. But people keep telling me, they say, 
Pastor Daniel, Jesus is Real is a special program. There's something so personal about it. There's something so street level about it. You're not afraid to explore both how messy life is and who Jesus really is and what he's up to in the world today. And as we started the program, we're seeing Jesus is Real Radio expand at a very rapid pace. There's not a week that doesn't go by that we're not approached by different radio programs and television programs saying, we want to put Jesus is Real on. But listen, we need your help in order to do that. We believe that God wants us to bring Jesus is Real global. We want everyone in the entire earth to hear the message that Jesus is Real. Now listen, in order for us to do that, we would need your help. Jesus is Real Radio is an outreach ministry of Crossroads Community Church, the wonderful church that I get the privilege of being a pastor at in Vancouver, Washington. And the body of Crossroads sees the radio ministry as an extension of our mission's effort. So join us in reaching the world with this message. Here's Josh with some information about how you can get further involved. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. Yes, we encourage you to pray about getting involved with the ministry here at Jesus is Real Radio with a one-time gift or perhaps even monthly support. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on the Partner option to begin supporting Jesus is Real Radio. And please join us next time for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.